Good morning, everyone. Thanks very much for joining again on this uh, webinar on single-family offices in Singapore. So this morning's session uh, will deal primarily with the ongoing tax obligations and uh, tax planning efficiencies that can be gained on the Singapore family office um, uh, with, with respect to looking at how you can transition from, let's say, a corporate structure to a trust structure. What are the Singapore tax implications in doing that? And then maybe looking at some of the structural elements that can be a, a amended on the single, uh, the single family office in order to bring about some efficiency gains for the family. I myself will then uh, talk about the succession aspects of the family office, and there'll be two parts to this. So the first part will be uh, looking at uh, the general succession to testamentary transfer of single family offices, uh, the shares, and then looking at the, the trust side. So looking at if you have a Singapore trust, um, what is going to be the, uh, the, the sort of implications of having, let's say, a Singapore family trust um, where there is a succession and potential claims against the trust, either through clawback or looking at matrimonial community property regimes. And then we'll end the session um, on looking at a case study, which should hopefully bring all of this out and bring us all together the last two days. So the, the first part of the session, and we're trying to be a little bit quicker today than we were yesterday. Uh, the first part will be looking at uh, the taxing, the ongoing tax obligations and the ongoing tax planning that you can affect with respect to a Singapore family office. And then I'll, I'll join in with my session on the succession aspects of that. So at this point, I'll invite Kylie to uh, begin her presentation on uh, the, the taxing effects going forward. Okay, Kylie. Sure, just let me share the screen. Okay, good morning everyone and welcome back to our presentation. So yesterday I shared some basics of the family office structures. And of course today I will talk a little bit about the more complex structures as well as you know some of the issues that we need to consider. So before I do that, I'm just going to stop my video so that you can concentrate on the slides. Okay, so this is the second part a continuation of yesterday. The agenda for today is going to be the ongoing considerations. Okay, so we'll think about the family office structures. Once it's been set up, what do we need to consider? Because it is a structure after all. So it, it doesn't end with just setting up, right? And of course, some of the pitfalls. Pitfalls in the sense that if clients change their mind, okay, along the way, or if they don't straight go for their objectives, or eventually when they terminate the structure. Now what happens? So some of the things to think about. And of course, some of the different structures to cater to specific needs. Again, this is not an exhaustive, uh, exhaustive list, okay? So we are just going to discuss some of the more unique scenarios that we have come across. Of course, there are many other scenarios and just to share with you the different structures. Now, if you look at the family office, the life cycle, it starts from stage one, which means the family just holds the investments or using a BVI to hold the investments, okay? It moves to stage 2A or 2B, depending on whether they have a trust. And I'm just showing a very simple structure that I've discussed yesterday. And it moves to stage three, because at the end of the day, the family may decide to terminate the structure. Okay, so when we are thinking about stage two, 
Now, what are the considerations once the structure moves to stage two? So yesterday, we very briefly talked about, you know, all the things that we need to think, all the ongoing requirements, which includes accounting, because now all the entities in the structure, okay, regardless of how the structure looks like, it will have to prepare accounting because it is a proper company, okay? And of course, tax compliance. And some will ask, well, if there is no tax in Singapore, meaning under this structure, um, I have the tax exemptions available. And if there is no tax to pay, why do I need to file tax returns? Well, the answer is you still have to, even if it's a zero return. And in fact, there are benefits in terms of filing tax returns. And I will share with you why. For example, I, have a, I had a Russian prospect, okay? They approached us to set up a Singapore company with the intention to carry out all the trades, all the trading of oil and commodities outside of Singapore. And of course, the rationale is if they do everything outside of Singapore, it should not be subject to Singapore tax. Well, in the past, it's correct, okay? It's not subject to Singapore tax because it's not Singapore sourced. But the IRAS, our tax office nowadays will ask, number one, why do you even set up Singapore companies if you are not thinking about having any substance in Singapore? Okay, maybe you can still answer, just say that I like the Singapore, I, I, like, to, I like to use a Singapore company to front my vendors and my suppliers and my clients, okay? Now, the next question is that, can you show us the tax returns that you have filed in, um, in that foreign jurisdiction where the income is sourced? Can you show us the tax returns? Because if you can show us, then it means that it must be foreign sourced and not Singapore sourced. Otherwise, I'm sorry, but it should still be taxable in Singapore because you are not paying tax anywhere, right? This is a worldwide no tax position, okay? The next example is that I had an Indonesian client and the Indonesian client had a BVI. And the BVI had a bank account, of course, in Singapore. Okay, so the IRAS questioned, now you made 17 million of gains in terms of buying and selling of shares. And can I just understand, and of course it equates to about three over million of taxes that the IRAS is trying to tax. So is this Singapore sourced or not? The Indonesian client said, no, this is uh, Indonesian sourced because I made all the decisions in Indonesia. Okay. And having said that, now the tax office came back and said, in this case, can you show me a copy of the Indonesian tax returns that's filed by the BVI in Indonesia? Okay. And if you can't show me, and of course, the client couldn't because, to be honest, there was no taxes paid in Indonesia, okay? And that was the problem. So if you can't show me, again, it belongs to Indonesia. Uh, sorry, it belongs to Singapore, okay? And of course, the last example I will share with you is that I had a PRC Chinese client that was always based in Shanghai, and he set up a company in Hong Kong doing all the trades. And with all the money that he earned from this Hong Kong company, he opened a bank account in Singapore. 
Now, from a Singapore perspective, he claims an offshore argument to say that all the income is sourced outside of Singapore, which is quite right because he is not in Singapore, he's in Shanghai. In Hong Kong, he also claims an offshore argument to say that all the trading, uh, it took place outside of Hong Kong, okay? So he does a zero filing in Hong Kong. And in China, where he is based, he also says that it's offshore because the company is in Hong Kong and the bank account is in Singapore. So again, we have a worldwide no tax position and this is still very dangerous. Okay, so that's why with this structure in Singapore, with the right level of substance in Singapore, you know, accounting tax compliance, it must be adhered to. And this is a good evidence to substantiate that the tax also belongs to Singapore and you have done the proper filings in Singapore. For the trust, you also need to file taxes. Yesterday, somebody asked me whether Singapore administered trusts tax the income that they, it receives from the structure below. Well, the good thing about Singapore administered trusts is that it has a lot of tax incentives that it can choose from, okay? We have the Section 13Q, we also have the Section 13G incentives, and it depends on the profile of the settler and the beneficiaries. So you will then decide which incentive is good, and that incentive would allow the trust, as well as the holding company owned by the trust, to claim exemption on the income and likely it would be dividend income, okay, because it's just a holding company, same for the trust, to be exempt from tax in Singapore. Later on, I will talk about the effective tax rate of the whole structure, okay? And of course, there are other matters that we need to think about, declaration to the MAS. Yesterday, someone also asked, if the structure, if the incentive is granted for life, right? Do I still need to prove to the MAS every year? Well, the answer is yes, because the conditions, the economic conditions, meaning the 200,000 spending, and it's by the fund, not by the family office, okay? That has to be met every year, okay? And if it's not met, what happens? Well, the incentive doesn't get taken away. It stays with you. It's just that for that particular year, you can't claim exemption. Okay, so following year, you can meet the economic condition, you can continue to enjoy the incentive. And someone asked, can salaries be part of the local spending? Well, salaries is part of the spending of the family office, which gets charged to the fund in the form of a management fee. So in a way, yes, it can indirectly form the 200,000 local spending, okay? Of course, there are other things you need to think about such as transfer pricing. Transfer pricing is because you are getting a management fee and therefore these are related parties wholly owned and you have to charge the fees on an arm's length basis. There are also CRS and FECA issues which I will discuss shortly, okay? Now, when we talk about the structure, the fund and the family office, what are they for CRS? For the fund, it is an FI. The fund meaning the red box. It is an FI, okay? Specifically, it is an investment entity. 
And as an investment entity, the obligation to report doesn't lie with the financial institutions. It lies with the controlling party of the fund, which could be the client himself. And of course, if he don't know how to do it, then he will have to engage professionals like us. Okay, so you still have to file for CRS and FACA. It's just that the obligation is with the client himself. And if the client is a non-US person, then it's a zero filing, it's a nil filing for FACA. If the client is a Singapore tax resident, then it will be a nil filing for CRS purposes. Now for the family office, okay, the family office is also a financial institution. Okay, but the thing is there is a carve out which exempts the reporting obligation for the family office, which is the management company. It's exempted. So the family office, in this case, the management company does not need to file FACA or CRS. It's just the red box, which is the fund, it needs to file. Okay, so it's no longer a passive NFE. It is now an investment entity because of the fact that it is managed by family office. Okay, so the ongoing considerations, if you think about the effective tax rate, now let's look at the effective tax rate. Okay, the return on investments, the fund will be holding, say, a portfolio of investments, okay? And from the investments, you will have the gain from sale of securities, the bonds, dividends, interest, all sorts of income. Now, under the tax incentive, most of it should be tax exempt in Singapore. But of course, there would still be foreign taxes suffered. For example, if the fund holds, say, US shares, Okay, even though there is no tax in Singapore, but they could still be withholding tax in the US. So, and assuming if there is a double tax treaty between the fund, which is Singapore, and of course another jurisdiction, then you can claim reduced withholding tax rates. Okay, but once it comes back to Singapore, there is no further tax. And for all those active trading gains where the source belongs to Singapore, for example, the buying and selling of the securities and bonds, okay? For those, the source belongs to Singapore, there is no foreign withholding tax, and at the same time, there should not be any Singapore tax because largely it should fall within the exemption list, okay? Now then comes, what if I distribute the gains to the holding company? When you distribute to the holding company, it has to be in the form of a dividend. Unless you are saying that I'm extending it, the funding via a loan and it goes back in terms of interest. But I can tell you 99% of the structures, it would be via equity whereby the return is in the form of dividends. Okay, even if there is a loan down, it could be an interest-free loan. So the repatriation of funds comes in the form of dividends. And the dividends going to holding company would be tax exempt. Like just now we have discussed, if this is a Singapore administered trust, the trust as well as the holding company below will be able to claim tax exemption. Okay, so further distribution to the trust, tax exempt. And of course, 
to the beneficiaries, from a Singapore perspective, it is tax exempt as well. No tax. Of course, if the beneficiaries, they are US persons, uh, Indonesian tax residents, they are Chinese tax residents, well, back in their home country, there could be tax implications when they receive in their personal name, but they have a choice to receive or not, okay? But in Singapore, there is no further tax. So you can see that the structure, the effective tax rate, other than the foreign taxes, which cannot be avoided, okay? The structure itself largely is, it is possible to get to a zero. So it is a tax efficient structure, okay? At all levels, that's highlighted with the exception of the FMC. The FMC is the family office that receives the management fee. And of course, with the management fee, it pays a salary. So when we are talking about the family office, actually, even though it would be subject to normal taxation, okay, with no tax incentives in Singapore, but the amount of profit that it will be making would be quite minimal, quite insignificant, because it's just management fee. We are not talking about gain on sale of securities or bonds. Management fee, less of the salary, any deductible expenses, okay? And then also our um, Singapore tax regime, the first 200,000 Singapore dollars of taxable profits, you can claim partial tax exemption. So close to half of that is tax exempt, okay? And then the remaining is taxed at the rate of 17%. So what are some of the pitfalls? And also <clears throat> what happens when clients say, I want to terminate the structure? Okay, so let's examine. Now clients, sometimes they are quite fickle minded. Okay, they like to change from one structure to the other. They cannot decide. And one year they will build one structure, the next year they will change. And what happens? Now, for example, I have a Taiwanese client called me up yesterday and said that I currently have a BBI and my BBI holds a Chinese operating company. And of course the Chinese operating company, you know, it holds real estate in China. It holds land, it holds buildings, factory, and of course, it is an active operating business. So it's a Wufi, okay? BVI holding a Chinese operating entity. And he's saying that I'm getting increasingly nervous with this BVI holding company. So I want to get rid of my BVI holding company and I want to change it to a Singapore holding company. So I said, that's fine. And I gave him the pros and cons about Singapore, okay, versus Hong Kong. And I said, is that your end game? And he said, uh, actually, after two years of changing it to a Singapore or a Hong Kong holding company, I want to put it under a trust. Okay. And I will try it out first. Okay. And if I don't like the trust, I'm going to terminate. I said, wow. Okay. That's going to be very expensive. It's not because of the setting up or the termination of the trust or the structure. It is more because every time you change, there are transaction costs. And in this case, if you were to move from BVI to Singapore Holding Company, you would have to think about your stamp duty. You would have to think about your capital gains, and that is going to be very huge in China, given that you are holding immovable assets currently recorded at historical cost. 
and it's been 20 years and you know how much the real estate has picked up okay and two years down the road if you feel like it you want to put it in a trust it's another change of shareholding even though beneficially it's still yours but legally there is a change and in china they actually tax on indirect transfer as well so even if you are changing the shares of the singapore company on top it is deemed to be a transfer of the chinese assets below and if you are not happy with it you break your trust okay so it's back to your personal name well it's another set of transaction costs so when it comes to this we usually tell clients look what is your end game what do you have in mind because we can't be switching structures every two or three years. It's going to be expensive. What do you have in mind? Is your structure sustainable to achieve those objectives? These are questions that the clients need to ask themselves. And also we have to ask them when we are building structures for them. So it's not about what they want because they have to know what they're going in for. Otherwise, they will say, can you offset your professional fees against my tax bill? Well, that's highly unlikely, unfortunately. Okay, so it's very costly to change the structure. And of course, clients will say, what if I want to get rid of my structure? Okay, I've built a simple structure. I want to get rid of it. Getting rid means coming back to stage three, coming back to square one. So as if you've never built the structure. So what happens? Well, you have to think about the steps and the costs involved. And of course, step number one, you have to think about how, to, how do I transfer my investments currently in the fund, okay? And how, or do I need to liquidate those investments? Well, some can be liquidated, some has to be transferred. To be honest, some cannot be transferred because of whatever reasons, PE or some, some listed entity shares, etc., cannot be. Okay, so these are the things that you need to think about and how easy, how long will it take? It really depends on what type of investments the fund is holding. Of course, if the fund is only holding bankable liquid assets, it's very fast. It's very fast to exit. And the next step is, of course, once I transfer the investments out, okay, I need to liquidate the companies. I need to strike off the companies. And if those companies are in Singapore, should be relatively straightforward, okay, unless the balance sheet of the company is still full of assets and liabilities. But once you get rid of the assets and liabilities, that balance sheet is zero, it's very easy to strike off or to liquidate the company. It shouldn't take that long. And of course, once you strike off the company, then you need to dismantle the trust. And how long it will take, it really depends, okay? So all in, in order to come back to square one, the client has to think about the stamp duty involved, the legal fees involved, the liquidation fees, okay, any last tax filings that needs to be done. Well, in general, we observe is that to dismantle our structure, it takes about two to six months. And that's about the average. Okay. So the next part of today's presentation is on the different structures to cater to different needs. Okay, so the more complex structures. Now, if there is a client coming to us and say, look, I've got a simple structure as a start. I've got, I want to put a trust on top. Um, but because I also have US beneficiaries, US persons, 
okay? And I want to be able to pass on the wealth to my US beneficiaries and at this moment, whatever the trust derives, um, I don't want to have a US tax consequence, okay? So very simply, you can just build a trust on top and this is a foreign grantor trust. Now that should be able to achieve the results. And of course, for this part, the foreign grantor trust, you need to speak to a US lawyer, okay? Not people like us, but a US lawyer, okay? So this is still okay. Now, if you look at this one, say for example, I have two families or I have three families, three brothers, in the family and each brother they've already inherited their wealth okay and they want to set up their own structure so they've got their own structure in place but they want to share the family office because they are saying that look each structure means three people because of course they're going for section 13x because the funds are all bvi non-singapore funds it needs three people each so that means three structures, I need nine people. That is too many for me, okay? We, we cannot afford so, so many headcount. So can we share the family office? The answer is yes, you can share the family office, okay? So you have your own structure. So in this diagram, you have two brothers, two big families with two individual trusts, and they have their own set of beneficiaries, okay? And of course, they jointly hold the family office, which is the gray. And the family office actually employs still three people and be able to manage the funds such that in this case, the funds would be considered to have substance in Singapore. And at the same time, of course, the two red funds will be able to apply for Section 13X incentive. Now, for this one, of course, instead of a legal opinion to say that it's exempt from license, we need a case-by-case -case application to the uh, MAS to say that it's exempt from license. Okay, so this is good if you want to pool the resources, um, such as the investment professionals and save costs, because it's just one family office, not several family office, lesser headcount, lesser cost. And you are thinking to, and, and you probably have to share some sort of goal and strategy, investment strategy, and um, manpower resources. So this is ideal, okay, if you want to manage different families. But of course, they are all families. They are not third parties. Otherwise, the family office would need to get licensed. Now, another structure you can see, in this case, we have two funds. Okay, the family office sits outside the trust. Well, sometimes because of whatever reason, the family office is not suitable to be sitting inside the trust. So it's sitting outside the trust. Okay, and it's still possible to get an exemption from license because it's wholly owned by the set laws or even one of the set laws, it's still possible. Okay, so in this case, both funds whether you are going for the Section 13X master feeder, assuming if you have enough AUM, or if you don't have enough AUM, you can go for, say for example, the top one could be a Section 13 CA fund. That means an existing BVI that with very illiquid investments that you can't move, and therefore it is 
stuck there, so you can go for 13CA, and the other fund, you can attempt to go for 13R with no minimum AUM requirements. So it really depends whether you want to go for 13X master feeder or 13CA coupled with a 13R, depending on the level of AUM you have and the number of people that you have, okay? And the next one is we had a case whereby the client said, look, it's all within the same family, but it's just that I've set up trust with one trust with bank A for one set of um, beneficiaries, another trust with bank B for another set of beneficiaries, okay? And I have some BVIs floating around. And I want all these BVIs to be, to be able to obtain Singapore tax residency status to claim Singapore tax resident, to pay tax in Singapore, of course, at the same time, claim tax exemption. But of course, I'm not going to be setting up one family office under every trust. Okay, so I'm going to set up one family office just for my family, and I will enter into a management agreement with all my BVIs, whether they are currently housed in, under a trust or not. Okay? So this is good, assuming if you have different type of assets, because not everything can be housed under the trust, right? Because you could be having operating very active companies, very active operating assets that, or, or because of the costs involved, like just now I said, a Chinese operating company with real estate, you can't move, you can't move at all. So what do you do? you can enter into arrangements such as this. You don't move them because when we are making structures, we try to minimize the movements because the more steps and the more movements, the more expensive it will be in terms of transaction costs. And the last one I have for today is in a listed entity group, okay, as you can see, we have the family members who are shareholders of the listed company. We also have third parties, obviously, because it's a listed company. So its shares are open to the public. Okay. And under the listed company, we have excess cash flow. But the listed company doesn't want to distribute the excess cash flow as dividends. Not yet. So what happens now? We have excess cash that's trapped in a listed entity group. And you know, when we are applying for incentives, there are two teams in the MAS in general. Okay, one is that it caters for single family office. That means you are all related by blood. Okay, single family. Now in this diagram with the listed company and third party investors, obviously, you can't fit into the definition of a single family office, okay? Then you go to the next team, which is the third party fund. So things like your Blackstone, your KKR, your CVC, okay, all those funds. But again, this doesn't look like a third party fund, even though it has third party investors. Why? Because the investors are actually investors of the listed company. It is not the investors of the fund itself. It is a very indirect relationship. So the investors, if you ask them, what are you investing in? They are not going to tell you I'm investing into the fund. They are going to say, I'm, in my, I'm investing into shares of this ABC listed company. Okay. So then it becomes a very awkward situation. 
it is awkward because it is neither a single family office nor a third party fund. So in this case, the company A, the red color will not be able to apply for the section 13X or 13R incentive. What can it do? Now it can go for a managed account. The managed account was introduced in the 2019 budget as an expansion to the section 13X scheme. Okay, the managed account in this case, it doesn't have a requirement whereby it looks at the shareholders and say, okay, you must be investors into the fund. Are you family? Are you not family? No, it doesn't. It simply looks at the account. And the account has to be a custodian account of the family office. Of course, legally, it still belongs to company A. But the incentive in this case is given to the account, not to the company. Which means if the company has other accounts, it will not be able to enjoy the tax incentive. It is only this account. And this account has to be 50 million AUM, and we are talking about net AUM and about in one particular bank. It is not several banks add up together. It's one particular bank, one account, okay? And once you get it, of course, you get it for life, for the life of that account, right? And if you are not happy with the bank and you want to change bank from bank A to bank B, so your account is no longer there, which means you will have to apply again. But meanwhile, it is suitable, okay, if you have a listed entity group and you have excess cash and you don't want to dividend up, but you want to manage the cash to create further values for your investors within the group itself. And of course, it will be reflected in the shares per earning, earnings per share of the listed company. Now that would be useful. So you go for the managed account. The downside is that it has to be just one bank, one account. Of course, you have, you have several accounts with 50 million, then you apply this for several accounts. So it is not on the company level, it is on the account level. Okay, so that's all I have for today. Okay, I've already exceeded my time. And I'm going to pass it on to Zach. Zach, over to you. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Kylie. Very, um, very insightful. Let me screen share. Okay, so um, this is a sort of somber topic to, to, um, to continue on with after um, Kylie's technical session there. Uh, and this really just looking at two areas. And the only reason why we, we decided to put this on as part of the, uh, the discussion is because of obviously the, the current climate and clients being very concerned about how things will go, if anything untoward were to happen to them. So the agenda really is testamentary succession, just updating how that would work in a Singapore context where we have a foreign individual. And in a, looking at the succession firewalls, particularly with respect to trusts that are formed and created in Singapore and how they will fare in the event of a succession. So just moving on to the uh, testamentary succession first. Same diagram as we, we had yesterday. Um, so we have a, an individual owning, let's say, all the shares in a holding company, and then there's the fund structure uh, beneath, which is a fund management company and the, the, the sort of fund company itself. 
Now, this individual is assumed to pass away and they die with, let's say, a Singapore will. This is the proportions in which they are decided to move the shares on their death. Presumably there's other aspects. They could also obviously have a trust within the, uh, the, the will as well. So standard sort of succession planning where you're using testamentary instruments instead of uh, sort of a inter vivos or lifetime trust. The question that comes up for us now, uh, if particularly for the advisory side with families, is what is effectively the status of this will? In other words, is it valid? And how do we go about the process of validating whether or not that's the case? So the validity of a will um, from an international client's perspective, uh, there are three aspects that you, you'll need to run through. The first is the formal validity of the will, and I'll, I'll run through that. The next is the capacity of the individual to create the will. And then finally, the essential validity. And this is the one that actually catches out um, a lot of the, uh, the advisors in casually creating these sorts of wealth planning um, tools for clients, the essential validity of the will, which is basically what is the applicable law um, for that will. In other words, which law will govern the succession to the family office going forward? Will it be Singapore or will it be elsewhere? So coming back, let's look at the formal validity of the will. Formal validity in a Singapore context is effectively governed by uh, the Wills Act. And what it will require is, is this document properly executed? And here, Singapore law follows effectively UK law, and it provides many, many different alternatives to validate that the will was properly executed. So it'll either be where uh, it was executed, the territory in which it was executed, It'll look at the testator's domicile, either at death or on signing the will. Testator's habitual residence, again, either on date of signing or on the death. And then looking at the nationality and, uh, sorry, and the nationality of the testator or either at the signing or on death. So you, you first need to validate that the will itself will be acceptable. Uh, and these are the different countries or the different uh, matrices that you can use in order to validate that this is a properly executed will. And here we're looking at the, the classical instance of the testator signing in the presence of two witnesses and the witnesses also countersigning in his presence. So that's the most, um, that's the sort of important bit about the will itself being um, validated. Then we look at the individual, the testator, and we look at the capacity of the testator to um, execute such a will. And really we're looking at the age. Uh, in Singapore, it's 21 years under the Wills Act. And we're looking at the mental capacity under Singapore, you have a presumption of capacity under Section 3.2 of the Mental Capacity Act. And then you're looking at the broader issues surrounding the signing of the will. Now, these are the classic areas in which you'll have a challenge where you have a contested estate. So there was fraud, undue influence, mistake or duress. One issue that comes up is the, the, the date or the age of the testator when they signed. And if there is a foreign will, uh, and there was a foreign domicile, then it will be what the foreign domicile rules were with respect to the, um, the, the, uh, the signing of the will, not on the date of the, the testator. You'll see this terminology of domicile recurring all the time um, in, when it comes to succession. And it's a, it's a concept that we'll sort of kind of move on to because without understanding how to apply or at least appreciate the domicile of the client, it's very difficult to do any level of international succession planning. So 
within a common law system, which is what Singapore and you know, sort of Hong Kong and Malaysia, etc., they all enjoy uh, a, a common law history. Domicile can be broken into a number of options. So the first is domicile of origin. That's basically your what was your father's domicile, and if unmarried, and what was uh, your mother's domicile. Then there's this concept of a domicile of dependency, and really that deals with uh, minors as well as it used to deal with wives. So it used to be the case that the wife would take on the domicile of her husband. For Singapore purposes, that's no longer the case. So Section 47 Women's Charter would, would abolish that. Again, in line with UK law, UK abolished that as well. The one that's most important is the domicile of choice. And domicile of choice has two real elements to it. The intention to settle permanently in the country and surrounding circumstances that support that. So it's a fact pattern as well as a subjective intention. And this is very important because ordinarily when it comes to uh, high net worth individuals with assets across different jurisdictions, it will obviously be the domicile of choice that you need to look at um, going forward because the asset class may not match where they originally were from. So from a Singapore perspective, the, a Singapore citizen is presumed to be domiciled in Singapore unless otherwise shown. So if you have Singapore citizenship, then you're presumed to be domiciled. But this can obviously be rebutted. The reason why domicile plays in so crucially is this. It leads to the essential validity of the will. This means what's the governing law under succession under the will. Now, when it comes to movable property, uh, succession is governed by the law of domicile at the death of the, uh, the testator. So obviously a person can move through different domiciles during their lifetime by moving to different regions of the world. The important one for the will, when you're proving who's entitled to the assets, is the domicile at their death. So obviously a family office is going to be a company and it's the company shares that are, will constitute movable property for these purposes. So it's quite important if you're advising clients on succession planning, particularly in the, um, the unfortunate circumstances that we're now faced with, that you uh, appreciate that the, uh, the shares are movable and they will be subject to the succession laws of the place of domicile. So to give a good example of this, let's say that you conclude a will with a client in, uh, in Singapore, but actually they are foreign domiciled. Uh, you put in great provisions, let's say you even put in a will trust as well, and you spend a lot of time creating this structure for the client, uh, but it's all based in Singapore. And the expectation is that the provisions in the will will obviously be followed on the, uh, the settles passing. The actual effect though is when we apply the foreign domicile rules, actually none of that happens at all. What, actions, what actually happens is the validity of the will, the essential validity of the will is actually governed by a different legal system, not by a Singapore system. So to give a graphical example of this, let's say we have a Singapore tax resident that is domiciled in country A. Now on that Singapore tax resident's death, that Singapore would look insofar as movable property is concerned, Singapore would look to what are the succession rules in country A. Now, the succession rules in country A may well say, well, we follow the nationality of the individual. Now, this is a Singapore tax resident individual domiciled in country A, but actually um, effectively a national country B. Now, if we go to country B, they may say, well, actually the succession to these shares is actually a place of residence. So it's quite a, it's quite a difficult interplay um, how the succession law will apply, but it's very important that we appreciate that it's not just that we've effectively created a Singapore will, 
um, or we, we've sought to put it into a Singapore will trust that will necessarily follow if we have made no investigation of domicile of the particular client. And this is showing uh, graphically how things can go awry if we end up with multiple, um, in, you know, sort of Singapore tax resident, but was actually domiciled in Indonesia, but there was a Dutch national, let's say. This could be the scenario that's being played out. So it's very important that we first ground out the domicile of the client. Now, let's assume that this client was in fact Singapore domicile. There's only uh, limited um, provisions under Singapore law to effectively override the provisions of the will. And here it's really on the Inheritance Family Provision Act. This again is um, a, a, a piece of legislation that originates um, uh, in the common law jurisdictions. UK has it, uh, Hong Kong has it, Malaysia has it, and obviously Singapore has it. And what it does is it provides for the surviving spouse, um, for the unmarried daughter, minor son, and disabled children. And what it does is it provides a maintenance order. Now, I mentioned this just to show that if there are difficulties in the family and the testators looking at what, you know, sort of writing out people from their wills, they ought to consider, particularly if they're Singapore domiciled, whether or not the effect of that will be that a claim is later made under the Inheritance Families Provisions Act. But this is the only instance in, in Singapore, other than an intestacy, where there's an override and statutory material provides um, a, a devolution of the estate. Usually, as with all common law systems, um, you can provide for uh, your own passing, uh, how assets will be distributed. So the key summary here, the key takeaway on the uh, uh, testamentary succession is this, you must determine and review the client's domicile. You, you can't, that's the basic starting position in doing any advice to anybody who is um, international and is using Singapore as a international financial center for their, their private wealth. You must stress test um, the intended succession plans that they currently have or encourage them to stress test um, to see whether or not they actually work. Um, they may have been uh, implemented or thought about many, many years ago. Does it actually follow through? Are they now Singapore domiciled or are they domiciled elsewhere? Reviewing the existing wills in light of the client's current circumstances. So here you're just looking for whether or not the will provisions are now subject to a forced airship regime uh, going forward. So you're trying to stress test that what the client did before actually works now. And then the final one is to risk assess the likelihood of a contested estate. And if you, if you run into this sort of situation, then it's a very, you have to be very cautious and um, try and get lawyers involved as, as, as quickly as you can. Because obviously with this whole environment, there will be families that are not in a happy place and there will be um, members that are looking at uh, each of the changes that could occur to a will, et cetera, with an eye to later litigations. You have to be very, very careful. Things like will signings, et cetera, all of it needs to be filmed, need to have doctors involved if there's any issue on capacity, et cetera. So it's very, very important that you're empathetic to the client's circumstances, particularly with families that are um, potentially contentious. Now, succession firewalls. The, this issue is all around uh, a trust being created, let's say it has the, the family office being held in there. And we're looking at the ability for members of the family, once the settlor has passed away, to effectively attack that trust. Now, you can have two lines of attack on a trust. You can either have an inheritance clawback claim, which basically says this, I'm from a jurisdiction where there are forced airship regimes. Uh, so Indonesia is an example of that, or 
<clears throat> some of the other the other sort of civil law related jurisdictions in the region. And I've, I've shown that my share has not been properly um, met by their free estate. And therefore I wish to claw back lifetime distribution, distributions into trust. So this is a classic inheritance clawback claim. The other uh, sort of avenue for attack is the community, uh, is the community property regime where the, the surviving widow, let's say, is able to make a claim against the uh, trust assets um, under the community property regimes. So there's two lines of attack, heirs or community property. And what we're trying to do here is figure out if there were in fact a Singapore trust involved, how would it work? How would we, would we actually be able to withstand these, uh, these various claims? So looking at the anti-forced airship protection that we have, section 90 of the Trustees Act provides um, the material. What it provides is this, um, without going too much into the detail, it's basically saying that the validity of creating a trust or transferring assets into a trust um, is subject to the capacity of the individual um, at the time of either transfer or the trust creation. And under section 91, the capacity is deemed to be satisfied if any of these laws, law of Singapore, law of domicile, nationality, or the proper law of the transfer, if any of them are satisfied, uh, then the transfer into the trust or the trust itself cannot be uh, challenged. This is only in respect of, under section 92, in respect of inheritance uh, or succession claims. So these are the two grounds on which the trust can't be impugned going forward, inheritance or succession, i.e. airship claims. There is, however, a proviso. Uh, the, the deeming provisions don't apply to a Singapore citizen or a Singapore domiciliary. So again, when creating trusts, you have to know whether or not you're dealing with a Singapore domiciliary going forward, because if you're not, then the deeming provisions, i.e. the deemed validity, uh, will not apply. And what you end up with is uh, having to rely on common law principles. The other thing, of course, is there has to be a Singapore trust, and it has to be being administered by a Singapore trustee. So the anti-forced air protection, in summary, is deemed capacity to create only if you're not Singapore domiciled citizen at the relevant time. The trust has firewall protections only against inheritance and succession claims, and it has to be a Singapore proper law trust with a Singapore trustee. Clawback claims against a Singapore domiciliary citizen that created a trust will be subject to the ordinary principles, ordinary conflict of law principles. Uh, these are fairly complex, but generally, uh, common law doesn't look very favorably on a clawback claim from a, from a forced air jurisdiction involving uh, assets, movable assets that were situated in the common law jurisdiction. So it's, it's quite difficult for a claim to be sustained against a trust in that way, but it's not impossible. So the summary position is this, must determine and review client's domicile. Okay, you must understand that because the uh, anti-forced air rules are tethered to that domicile and obviously the nationality. You must review that a creation of the trust and additions to the trust. These are the most of the, the indices when you must look at this. Determine whether the heirs are able to enter into an agreement or an arrangement to waive their entitlements. So if you find this situation could occur, and try and engage with the family to see whether or not there's a way in which they can get around the forced air claim, um, potentially um, sort of uh, rearing its head. Determine whether it's a contested estate, and this will give you some risk ranking on the likelihood of later dispute with this family. 
Now the other head, the community property claim. So this is different. This is not about succession. It, will, it could arise obviously in the, in, the, in the instance of the death of a settlor, but this is about the matrimonial regimes around the relationship that's now ceased as a result of the death of one of the parties. So under Singapore, there's no firewall protection for this. So section 90 is only inheritance and succession. I suspect the Singapore court would not strain to include within succession matrimonial regimes. So I think we're limited on the firewall to effectively airship claims. Doesn't extend to personal relationships, which is the general wording that you see in the uh, firewall protections and some of the other offshore financial centers. The community property is seen as a proprietary interest. So it, let's look at the mainland Chinese relationship. The wife would, on marriage, start to accrue a proprietary interest in half of the assets during the currency of the marriage. That's a proprietary interest. So the idea here is it's not a claim. It's actually when the husband settles the trust, half of the assets going in are owned by someone else. So here, that's the, that's the main issue that you have with these uh, community property regimes is it's proprietary in nature. Some jurisdictions have, of course, moved to try and um, create firewalls against this. I, I use the example of Lab One. Um, within its uh, Trusts Act, Section 10 provides at 101A, personal proprietary consequences of marriages shall not invalidate a transfer into a trust or, or the trust itself. So that's an example of one of the regimes in the region that um, has sought to address this. Singapore has not done that. So on community property, uh, the real thing is this, determine whether community property applies at all. So the clients that come to you and decide to create trusts must first decide if they're creating a trust of a family office. Well, look at the settlor and then think about, well, uh, where are they, where's their domicile? Where are they situated? What's their, uh, being married? And then look at whether or not community property applies and determine whether or not the assets that are being placed in trust would, would in fact be community property. Determine whether the spouse can validly consent to the transfer into the trust so that later on there wasn't a claim against the trust. And this is quite important. Explore ways in which you can perfect the transfer into the trust. And then obviously determine whether or not there's a likelihood of a contested estate because that will give you a good idea of whether or not this will, it has a potential to blow up if anything were to happen to the settlor. So <clears throat> if you, you have to come back to the position of advising the settlor accordingly and obviously advising the testator as well in summary, without all of these underlying fact patterns, without understanding the community regime, without understanding the domicile, it's very difficult to begin the process of uh, competently advising international clients. That the only connection with Singapore may well be that they have a family office and that they have, let's say, um, PR status, but we don't know whether or not they actually have domicile in Singapore. So it's very important that these investigations are done in order to ground out the proper advice as to whether or not they do testamentary dispositions or whether or not they move to create a trust and what's the survivability of that trust if anything were to happen and family members were unhappy about uh, sort of being uh, uh, written out or not having the correct amount of shares or, or benefits from the trust. Okay, that was all I wish to say on, on, on this. Um, I'm gonna bring it back to, to screen share generally. Um, stop the share. And I'll invite Joe who appears to have dropped off <laughs> um, to see whether or not we can enter into the, uh, the um, area. So Joe, if you could um, 
start to begin the uh, sort of case study. I think we're running, as usual, a little bit almost late. Um, look at the case study so that we can begin the process of just running through how all of this will come together in a, in a practical example. Sure, sure. Let me just uh, share my screen. One moment, please. I just uh, had to reset my modem because my I think Joe may have uh, frozen there. I think the general idea, is just for the members that are still here, the, the idea of the case study was to look at a scenario where we have uh, a family um, thinking about creating a Singapore family office but they've got a many different matrices in, in the relationship. So it's three generation family, they have a family business involved, and they also have various um, assets under management within different jurisdictions. And the idea behind the, um, the, the case study was really to bring together what would be the best advice for a family that has um, extended uh, sort of generations where you're looking at going into a Singapore family office and they're, they're assessing whether or not to use a trust and they're, they're assessing whether or not to look at uh, which exemption would be the best one to apply. So I think that was what Joe, who's now back, was going to deposit. So Joe, if you can go on ahead. I'm back now. Can you guys hear me? Yep. Okay, let me try to share the screen again. My internet is uh, dropping on and off. Okay, can you hear me? Can you see yeah. the screen? Mm -hmm. Okay, excellent. So let me just... Right, <clears throat> that's the Wong family. Right. Mm -hmm. Let me quickly go through this. Um, this is a family, a typical Asian family. Founder Mr. Wong started the business together with his wife many years ago. They've got um, three children, the eldest son and um, the second son, John. They're both working in the business. Eric is CEO, he's married. His wife is also working in the business, doing the HR. The second son, John, is the uh, CEO, mm -hmm. married to Meili, and they're not, um, she's not working in the business. The um, <clears throat> eldest daughter of Eric and Lisa, is working in the business, she's a manager. The second child is studying in the US. Uh, John and May Lee have two kids. One of the kids is um, working in the business as a manager. Mm -hmm. and the, uh, the youngest daughter is um, a student in the UK. The third child of Mr. and uh, Mrs. Wong, Cecilia, she's um, not married, she is engaged to um, um, Lawrence, who works as a lawyer somewhere else, and she's managing the family businesses, uh, the family financial assets. If you look at the um, assets of the family. So the business was founded by Mr. Um, and Mrs. Wong. Mr. Wong is still the controlling shareholder. He um, owns 76% of the business. The business went public uh, two years ago, listed in one of the regional stock exchanges. The directors of the business are um, Eric, 
John and Eric, Lisa and John. And there's um, a non, there are two non-family external directors involved. Um, the company has um, a heavy and very expensive debt burden and they need to do something about that. Then the um, personal investments, which are managed by uh, Cecilia. There's um, a BVI personal investment company. Uh, Mr. Wong is both the, the shareholder and the director. And there's um, some bank accounts um, and insurance policies held by Mr. Wong directly. Mm. So <clears throat> what they plan to do is establish a family office in Singapore. The family office is to manage the um, listed company shares and the financial assets of Mr. Wong. They will uh, obviously want to uh, consolidate all the investments of, the, um, of Mr. Wong under the family office. And Mr. Wong will provide a list of investments that the family office may not invest in. The family office will initially be guided by Mr. Wong. Mm. Um, afterwards though, the um, succeeding generations, including the in-laws, will um, guide or govern the family office. The second generation will not inherit the ownership. And this is um, interesting. Second generation, they all wish to obtain Singapore citizenship. So let's um, go over to the, uh, the questions. Um, is it possible for the family office and the family business to be owned by different family members? Um, maybe Kylie, you want to first comment on this? Well, it is possible. I mean, um, we have the one, one set of the family, ABC could be the owners of the business and CDEF could be the owners of the, the family office. So it is indeed possible. Yeah. And of course, I, I can see that the intention in this case is um, for the second generation, the second generation not to inherit. Um, so it is still possible for them to be part of the governance role. And um, of course, uh, it, as long as they are part of the family, so it is quite possible. Okay, thank you. Anybody else to uh, comment anything here? Hmm. I think, yeah, just yep. my, my only comment is to, if it's owned by different members, then you need to look carefully at how the governance will work because it's supposed to be multi-generational. So if it's owned by individuals, then you're, you're forced to look at how their shareholdings will move. And obviously the, the, the trust will own a share as well. So I think in this context, you probably, because it's multi-generation, you don't necessarily want to use personal ownership. All right. Okay. <clears throat> so, Kylie, um, yeah. we went over um, many, uh, many different types of um, family office solutions in your uh, presentation. On um, this particular case, um, what are the, uh, the most ideal structure that this uh, family could, uh, could consider? Well, I can see that the, the UBO very much still wants the assets to be together. So it is not, he's not yet ready to sort of split them up into different family branches. So if that's the case, then I think we should just set up as, you know, a simple 
um, trust on top, just like what you have on the diagram, um, simple diamond structure or, or the two-tier structure. So it's a very simple structure, no need to go complex because we still have just one family branch at this moment. Until such time, of course, when the family splits, when they receive the distributions, then they can think about um, setting up their own individual structures. Okay, thank you. That's um, this typically one for you, uh, Kylie. Yep. Um, there's a lot of controversy and uh, new regulations with respect to um, the, the tax havens in Asia, Cayman and, uh, and BVI are most of the time used by families. Um, what are the pros and cons of um, continuing to use a, uh, a BVI company in a, in a structure? Well, BVI companies, they are still very good, to be honest. I'm not saying that BVI or any offshore companies are not good. The important thing is that you have to have the right level of substance. And so, for example, just now in the example that I mentioned, okay, um, can the Indonesian claim a BVI tax residency because he can't claim Singapore, he can't say Indonesia, then can he claim BVI tax residency and don't pay tax uh, in Indonesia or Singapore? Well, the reality is you can't because you don't have any substance in the BVI and they, they, there is nobody in the BVI. So if it is supported by the right level of substance, or if your BVI is able to migrate its tax status. So it is still a BVI company legally, okay? But for tax purposes, it is a tax resident of say Hong Kong or Singapore or wherever, then BVI is actually not bad because BVI, they don't have a compulsory audit requirement, okay? Unlike Singapore. So if you have a Singapore holding company, then you would have to audit the companies below, whereas for BVI as a holding company, you don't have a compulsory audit requirement. And from a privacy angle, it is actually better because can you imagine if you put a Singapore company on top and you just have to pay $5, okay? On the Accra website, you can buy the BIS file and you can see who the shareholders are and how much is the capital, assuming if it's funded by equity and not shareholders loan. Right. Thanks. Um, let's go over to the um, next question. Um, this is perhaps one more for, uh, for Zach. Um, Zach, can you comment on some of the main concerns in um, creating a multi-generational succession plan for this uh, family using the uh, family office? The main thing is they're going to be using a trust. They use a Singapore trust, then they're going to have to be very careful of um, the, the community regimes that could possibly apply to the, uh, the spouse. So they have to be very clear that when they transfer assets into this trust, that these assets are not subject to some level of clawback, either through forced heirs, because for some reason the trust is not sufficiently protected under Singapore law, or more likely under the community property regime. So it's fairly important. There was a recent Cayman Islands case, I think they settled, where there was a mainland Chinese couple, um, a husband passed away, wife immediately made a claim against the Cayman Island Trust under the community regimes. And it was, it was obviously accepted under Cayman Islands because that's one of the exclusions from their firewalls. So it's very important that there's a good idea of what's the level of um, the likelihood of 
um, there being a contested estate if anything were to happen to the settle going forward. And it, the idea here is you just try and make sure that the family keeps on, a, on an even keel. So if there are things to be done, for instance, agreements across the forced air class and a consent from the wife, then all of these things should be obtained in creating this if they are obviously not Singapore domiciled uh, and the domicile of the marriage is not Singapore. So it's quite an important preliminary consideration. Without that, you're just effectively waiting to see what happens. Okay. Thanks. So that's, I can imagine that's uh, it's a very complex question if you take into consideration the uh, <clears throat> issues faced by Thai and uh, Indonesian um, clients if, um, if they ever wanted to set up a, a structure like this. Thanks, Zach. Uh, let's go on to the next one. This is about um, the Wong family, which is still very, uh, very manageable. It's just uh, father, mother, and three, um, three kids at this point in time. But what should the Wong family do to manage or avoid family disputes um, surrounding investments if they go on and create a single family office, given that the, uh, the next generation will obviously be uh, a bit more complex? Hello? Hello? Zach is gone. Yeah, Zach is gone this yeah. time. Yeah. He has a um, 1210 power cut. Ah, yes, that's true. Yeah, internet cut in Bangkok. Okay. Um, maybe in the meantime, we, um, we go on for the um, question for Don. Um, Don, the, um, the Wong family, um, one of their objectives of the second generation was to obtain Singapore, um, Singapore citizenship. Um, what, is, um, what would you suggest um, could they do to require this uh, Singapore citizenship? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Of course, Singapore um, doesn't have a, a direct sort of citizenship by investment program, but certainly using the GIP would be, um, in theory, the quickest way to get it. Um, so setting up the single family office um, will, of course, give them permanent residence, you know, starting now probably in anywhere between nine to 12 months in terms of the, the process of, of the application. That's sort of excluding the office itself, but certainly in terms of the PR, GIP application side of things, that, that's usually a nine to 12 month process. Um, once they have the, peer, the, the permanent residence, um, you know, Singapore's rules are that you would have to be a permanent resident for at least two years before you're eligible to apply. So they're looking at a two-year time frame. Uh, important there, I mean, if I look at experience of previous clients that have gone the GIP route, um, the focus a lot of the time is on the business. The, you know, as part of the application process for the GIP, you would submit a a sort of five-year business plan and certainly that would have very clear milestones that have to be reached. Um, I discussed yesterday around what those milestones are, uh, focusing more on, on, on how to, you know, whether you can get the, the three or the five-year renewal 
of the re-entry permit, but certainly clients that I've had that have been successful in getting sort of the, the Singapore citizenship after two years have played very open books um, in terms of um, meeting those milestones, exceeding those milestones. And of course, there's a lot of sort of um, more peripheral issues that will also be looked at and, and you know, talking to some of the the banks in Singapore, some of them are assisting those those type of applicants with um, also contributing significantly to the arts um, and to other sort of softer issues, charitable initiatives in Singapore. So there is no clear and fast rule, but certainly um, playing open books with EDB, showing them you know how the business is doing, um, and as I said, addressing some of those peripheral issues. Certainly, there's, there is proven cases where after two years of, of PR under the GRP, that citizenship is possible. Thanks for that, um, Dominic. Um, yeah, it's um, just curious. Um, if, if any family, is just a general question, any family in this part of the region, if they um, don't succeed in getting um, Singapore um, citizenship, what, what are the options? Um, in the region or elsewhere? What do you usually suggest? Yeah, so this, this often happens and it's not only for citizenship, but even, even sort of permanent residence applications. So um, it depends what the family's objective is. You know, a lot of the time, uh, of course, Singapore citizenship is, is a, it's a fantastic passport to have in terms of its, its travelability. Um, but a lot of our clients that either um, are focused a bit more in terms of the optionality, uh, the ideal scenario, if I, if I take an example of our Indonesian clients, the ideal scenario for a lot of them is, is once, they've, once they've obtained Singapore permanent residence, and we have, we have a few cases where they really have exited Indonesia in terms of, you know, the business has been handed over to the next generation. The ideal scenario for a lot of them is to have Singapore permanent residence, but then rather look to uh, obtain one of the European Union um, citizenship. So there you've got Malta and Cyprus. Um, you can effectively acquire citizenship of those EU member countries um, through through either a donation or investments into real estate. Um, with that, they get the, the, the citizenship. Of course, they would then renounce the Indonesian citizenship, which is okay if they've, if they've done a proper exit strategy there. Um, and for them, they then sort of have the Singapore permanent residence and EU citizenship um, that, of course, affords them all sorts of settlement freedom throughout Europe, but also the travel freedom, which certainly an Indonesian passport and most of the passports in the, in the Southeast Asia region don't, don't afford them. Okay. Thanks, Dominic. Um, Zach, are you you're back with us? We're in back. Sorry about that. Okay. <laughs> we were with the... Um, the um, the governance question on the on the Wang on the on the Wong family. Mm. Yeah, uh, this is a tricky one, one because <clears throat> if you're doing it through a trust, then the, the natural inclination is to uh, try and put in either a private trust company or put in a committee of protectors and have the family members circulate through that. I would say um, sort of on balance it's probably cleaner from a, a fiduciary responsibility perspective to have it structured with a private trust company. And that the governance that you have is really dealing with the directors of the private trust company from time to time. And the typical structure for that is the private trust company being held through a, uh, a form of purpose trust um, or alternatively uh, being structured uh, where you, you, can, you can control who are the directors from time to time of that private trust company. So I think that's the most important thing is 
um, with it from a fiduciary sort of risk exposure uh, context, I would say probably a private trust company is, is best. In terms of how they couple together all of the governance when they, they actually put it, put it through, because there's a, there's a trust involved, it'd be fairly complex in, in aligning all of the underlying. Uh, it's not impossible, obviously, but it's, it's, a, it's a fairly complex exercise getting all of the shareholder arrangements to dovetail with what's being intended with the family. But um, that, that aside, I think looking at it from a, from a multi-generational standpoint, it's probably better to de-risk the structure and have it as a private trust company going forward rather than have a committee, um, let's say with dad first as the, the primary protector, and then later on on dad's passing, having a whole, a whole committee based with all of the, uh, the, the siblings, et cetera. I would say that that has the potential to uh, re-risk the trust quite heavily. Uh, whereas if we try to move that up slightly into the governance of the, the actual private trust company directors, then I think that's much more clean going forward. Okay. Thanks for that. So that's obviously, um, that's a very different and very long and labor intensive process, I can imagine. Yes. Okay, over to the, um, the next question for probably for Kylie um, and for you, Zach. Um, what, what do you do if, again, back to Thai or Indonesian uh, um, families, those uh, in Thailand and Indonesia, they don't know trust, they don't recognize trust, there are civil law jurisdictions. Um, what, um, what would you do if, um, well, how do these? Uh, how do you usually deal with these uh, jurisdictions if you're trying to help out um, a family in Thailand or Indonesia? With respect to structuring through trusts, yes, mm, I mean, it's fairly tricky. I mean, I think the, the main thing that you would probably look at in, in, in is whether or not they uh, fully appreciate that the more that they load the trust up with reserve powers. Um, the more difficult it gets um, if, if they're operating, let's say, through a Singapore platform. Singapore, and this is a deliberate strategy, right, um, has not provided um, enough guidance statutorily as to the interrelation between reserve power holders and, uh, with respect to the, the trustees. So it's a natural inclination for these families to begin the process of trying to reserve back as much as they've given to the trustee. But in doing that, they create a rather unhelpful risk matrix within the trust. Um, the other thing, of course, is that you know if they if they sort of do fall out, then uh, it, it can become fairly public quite quickly. So you would you would tend to look at the optionality around this. Um, some jurisdictions allow for trust disputes to be done by arbitration, for instance, and, and some families will will want to prefer to do that. Other jurisdictions will provide for um, what used to be called a Sinatra clause, which is basically if a, a member challenges the trust, you can effectively um, sort of uh, delete their entitlements completely. So you would, I would think within the context, you can just sort of look at all of the matrix of jurisdictions that are available and try and get a feel for how the family will, will respond to that. Uh, if they're adamant about a Singapore uh, process, then it means a lot more drafting work has to go into the trust documents in order to shore it up and not rely on common law and the absence of statutory provisions to, to manage the relationship between the various power holders, which will naturally be uh, um, something that they want to do. 
as against the trustee, which in this case presumably is going to be a professional trustee in, into the mix. So it, it, I would say you do a full spectrum analysis of the different options and then you start to really fasten on the pros and cons of them trying to um, claw back as much as they can in terms of the, the trust control going forward. Now, obviously there's going to be um, CRS issues, etc. All the transparency issues will need to be talked through. Not so much on Thailand, um, not, not yet anyway, a few more years to go, but uh, for Indonesia that would be an yep. interesting one for them as well. Yep, definitely. Thanks for that. Um, it's uh, 12.20. I think um, there are some questions from the audience as well. How should we go about um, this? Shall we conclude or do we have time for um, one of the questions from the audience? I've got some time, so I'm, I'm very happy to stay on. And we've got 291 participants who are happy to stay on as well. So we, can hang, we can hang around a bit longer, I guess. Right. Um, let's go to uh, this question here. It's a um, question um, addressed to you, Zach. Um, if a Singapore discretionary settler reserve powers trust sets um, um, set up 10 years um, before the settler dies, even if he comes from a forced hardship country, is there an exclusion put in to, to pass on assets in the trust? On adopted children, divorced wife, or a divorced wife, would this work or not? To, um, to, exclude those, the, to exclude those individuals from the trust. Yeah, you mm. can try. I mean, yeah, you, you certainly can have a go, and you would be you know, sort of an inheritance. You would you'd seek to apply both the specific provisions of the trust as well as the firewall protections. Um, how successful that will be with respect to community property is another thing. Um, going forward, so. Okay. That's another uh, question here, which is, how does one manage the integrity, i.e. the non-dilution of the family's ownership in the trust if the family moves into several generations? Some of the children on the second generation may have different um, numbers of children, third generation. In that case, and as the generations pass on, move um, more and more move owners, um, they would they would migrate. How would you manage that? Within the trust context, you you'd probably have to give a letter of wish guidance on how to treat beneficiaries from each of the different limbs of the family as it as it continues to grow. One of the key aspects will be a, a sort of trust liquidity plan. So you'll, you'll have to make a decision as to whether or not um, beneficiaries are entitled to sort of capital amounts or just income and how that's distributed. Is it, is it statical effectively or is it going to be on branch basis? So it's really a letter of wish issue because you won't know. And in a discretionary trust context, you won't have a clue um, how it's going to develop over time. But you are locking in capital into a trust. So you'll need to manage that, I suspect, through the letter of wish. Or potentially you can have a, a committee um, embedded in the trust that can give consent to the trustee making these sorts of distributions so that there's some level of participation involved. Okay, thank you. And so <clears throat> from the same person uh, as a follow-up, as the generations move on, will all of them require to have residency in Singapore or in any 
other country that allows residency of all members or owners of the uh, the trust or the family office. Um, I guess that's more for um, yeah. Residency won't apply; won't be relevant to beneficiaries in the yeah. usual course. Mm. Yeah. It's an interesting question. Is the um, the private trust company in Singapore subject to CRS? It depends. Um, it's really a question about the trust being subject to CRS that it's providing services to. So it, it would depend on whether or not the private trust company qualifies as a financial institution, a managing entity for the investment entity tests. So it would depend on whether or not it's being remunerated and it actually is managing financial assets of the trust on a discretionary basis. Mm. I'm sorry, everyone. I need to leave because I have a call at 12.30. Okay, so if there are any questions for me, you can email me. Okay, thank you. Thanks very much, Kylie. Bye-bye. That's a pity. I, I, I just wanted to ask Kylie an interesting question, which is um, maybe you have some views on this, Zach. Um, if a client comes from uh, the USA or uh, Australia, the global tax um, citizen. What are the benefits of using um, a private trust in Singapore and set up a family office in Singapore? Did you have any um, comments here? I think it's going to be there. Well, it will all come down to the level of CFC rule, wouldn't it? Whether or not there's a there's a track back to their their taxing in the in the source jurisdiction by virtue of those rules. And whether the CFC rules are sufficient to look through a trust or if they're holding it in a corporate file and doing it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the, uh, the tax advantages will be very, um, that's a question mark. It's, that's um, a lot of work, but uh, we also noticed that a lot of families that, um, that a lot of inquiries that we are getting and uh, people from the, the US or Australia, they're not after tax, but they're after um, just succession planning and keeping the family and the assets together. Yeah. It's also a very important consideration. Uh, Zach, one for you again. Um, with regards to domicile for wills drafted in Singapore, mm. do you refer to domicile or origin or of choice? You domicile look at the of choice being hard to prove. Yeah, you look at the facts. It's not the domicile of the will, it's the domicile of the testator. You're looking at their domicile um, at death is the main one for essential validity. Insofar as the um, sort of uh, looking at things like capacity, you look at the domicile at the date the will is signed. Um, and then you'll have obviously domicile is one of the mix on looking at the, the form of the, um, the will. So has it been properly attested and etc. So you're looking at the individual, not the will. The will itself doesn't have a domicile. Right. Thanks. Uh, just to conclude, I have um, a few questions here um, where people are asking or the audience is asking the pros and cons of starting a, a single family office in Singapore um, or in, um, in Hong Kong mm. or like anybody is saying like uh, someone's asking um, any other uh, ideal jurisdiction in uh, Southeast Asia for starting a family office. Yeah, this seems to be a, a topical one. Usually what people will trot out is 
um, uh, Hong Kong is experiencing difficulties uh, at the moment politically, so therefore there are other reasons to consider Singapore as a safe haven. I don't, I mean, who knows whether there's merit in any of that argument, but I think it really comes down to this. It's the convenience factor, the professionals that are involved and looking at the substance of what's going to be unfolding because the jurisdictions are pretty similar. Um, they're both common law jurisdictions. You can structure in the same way. And family offices tend to be, um, particularly these types of family offices, a lot of other reasons to, to form them other than tax. There's also the consolidation effect, et cetera. So I, I think it's going to be various, and I think it'd be pretty much quite specific to the family's positioning. Yeah, yeah, and to the um, and to the assets, obviously, if the um, yeah, yeah, for the family business to be part of the uh, structure as well, like yeah, uh, the one family. Okay, it's twelve thirty. Um, I think uh, we we have to conclude this um, the second session. Um, just like yesterday, a recording will be available later today, yeah. and we'll send everybody uh, an email with the. Uh, they can uh, register to download the, the link to the, uh, the recording of the session. The um, other questions that there are some more questions, but we will um, we'll answer them by email. Yeah. yeah, very good. Okay, very good. Thank you very much, everybody, for attending. And thank you, Dominic. Thank you, Joe. And obviously, thank you to Kylie for participating. And thanks for everybody that's tuned into these things. So I kept dropping off, but that's Zoom for you. Yeah, same here. <laughs> okay. All right, thanks very much. Bye, Bye everyone.